I'm Kristen O'Brien, Managing Editor at NFX, and this is the NFX Podcast. So, Asaf, great to have you on the NFX Podcast today. You know, I was thinking back, we first met in 2015. I think it was a lunch we had, and I think Hippo was pre-product. I was fortunate enough to be a seed investor back then. And, you know, I sort of reminiscent purposes for this conversation, I pulled back your old deck and, you know, it's sort of amazing to see the journey and your kind of observations about the industry back then and how much of it's gone through. I guess, you know, maybe if you could sort of quickly describe where Hippo is today. And then, you know, I think most importantly, as you thought about the business back then, what did you see that others did not that created this opportunity? Yes, let's dive in. Firstly, so grateful to be in here and very happy to have you as an early investor. I think we were a lot earlier than a free product. It was a presentation. I actually recently sent the presentation, I mean, like a couple of months ago to the exec team. And in many ways, it was actually shocking how much it was the same hypothesis and the same kind of what we wanted to build. It's what we built. There's different components that are now haven't materialized as much. But, you know, it was about changing and uh, evolving home insurance, building something, building a direct channel. It was a lot more focused on millennials. I think it was about those new people that are coming into the acquiring of a home. We realized since then that it's a way broader solution, that it's not just catering to a specific demographic. It's actually catering to a way broader demographic. And I think over time, it keeps on evolving. It now our vision at Hippo is, we call it protecting the joy of home ownership. So we're moving vertically into home ownership, helping customers better take care of their home. But it's very much the same kind of problem and issues that we found back then are still resonating now. Mm-hmm. I guess, I mean, insurance is not a new industry, obviously, it's been around for centuries. And I guess as you, you know, going back to the original kind of spark of the idea, what was it you felt that was missing? What was it you felt that you could do better than anyone else? So, you know, I was a consultant with McKinsey in New York and did some projects for financial institutions and insurance companies. And one of the things that is really, really interesting if you're a consultant is that you're kind of opening the kimono of the potential customers and you're seeing what's going on. And I felt it's all broken. It's ridiculous. You couldn't implement anything. You couldn't do anything. So the entire thought of Hippo was a bit trivial even. I was somewhat worried. So I spent a lot of time and we're probably going to talk about it later on coming up with some of the idea. But the gist of the idea came from the fact that the average age of an agent, when I looked at it in 2015, was 58. It's north of 61 now. There are less than half the agents that used to be 10 years ago. So, you know, they're just retiring. 87% of new agents to the profession are leaving the profession within less than three years. And I thought, think about it. It's like social security. There's not enough people coming in and a lot of people are leaving. So that was the first kind of realization. And then I said, okay, let's look at it more in depth. And what I saw is that If no more newcomers are coming to the profession, if no new agents are joining, and the way that new agents used to build their business is by selling you simple lines in insurance, auto, home, life, SMB, there needs to be a change. And the change is it's going to be direct. It's not a really massive realization because this is what happened in auto. The only two carriers that are getting market share in the US are Geico and Progressive. And we thought, fine, let's build a Geico for home insurance. And it felt a bit of a trivial. That's not a crazy aha moment. It's like, okay, fine. It's a good logical kind of explanation. 
but there's not a lot of insight in it. It's like, I'm sure everybody's kind of know that. If I'm a, an insurance company, if I'm Liberty and Allstate and State Farm, duh, it's kind of like a, a trivial moment. So most of the time I spent was actually less on the finding, but more on the trying to figure out what am I missing? Why aren't they doing it? So it was a slightly different kind of introspection. I guess it's sort of like the idea seems so obvious that you wondered why it didn't exist. I guess it's sort of you never underestimate the ability or lack of ability for a big company to innovate and evolve. And is that what you've seen? Just the incumbents are just like fairly stuck in their ways in terms of the processes and products that they're offering? Yeah, basically like there were two hurdles on why it hasn't been done. One is from the incumbents and the other one, why haven't I seen 15 different companies or entrepreneurs that are pursuing such vast opportunity. Home insurance is $104 billion market now growing at 5% a year, would keep on going for forever. So I thought you're going to see dozens of these companies you know, popping in that stuff. So from the incumbent side, the most interesting industry I've ever seen in my life, because I have never seen such a severe channel conflict and innovators dilemma in any other industry. This is an industry that for 150 years built one channel and that channel was an agent. But whoa, these agents are 60 now. So what can they do? So if you are a CEO of an insurance company and someone comes and said, Pete, I want to start a direct insurance company. And yeah, it might cannibalize our business, but we have to do it. And what would happen is you're going to say, fine, go for it. But you have a $10 billion book of business that is basically sitting with agents and you need to start building something that cannibalize. All of the agents are going to say, whoa, 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 Pete, what are you doing? This is not the deal that we sign up with. You're supposed to take your marketing dollars and direct to us, not to go and compete with us, not to go to liberty.com and all of that. You're supposed, otherwise we're, we're moving. We're leaving to another company. We're taking our business with us. And no CEO wants to make the decision of a $10 billion versus a billion dollars. And hence, they're all frozen. So that's one. The second thing, these guys, they're not set up a technology company. It's an insurance company. And because of that, there's no CTO. There's no product that builds a product. There's no engineers. It's being used by, you know, Guidewire is the back end and someone else is doing the billing and Accenture is doing the implementation. It's not set up in the way that you look as a technology company is set up. Hence, they're dependent on a third party, on their systems, on implementing, on making changes and making product decisions, which becomes even more uh, for some. And the last thing, they have a current book. So if you're Allstate, you have a, I don't know, $11 billion book of business in home. And the regulation is such that if you want to change something, it requires you to file those 50 departments of insurance. You need to file in every state. And if you file something, then you now in the renewal need to actually attribute it to all of the people in that geography, in that you know state that are getting a renewal. So if you're doing an amazing job, it means that for 75% of your current business, you're probably going to be cheaper. So let's say we're 10% cheaper and everybody's going to be, it's awesome, but I just lost $750 million in premium. And for the other 25%, which are more expensive, I might capture more revenue, but some of them was going to say, whoa, 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 let me check my you know, other options because it's too expensive. So now by you altering the entire book, you might lose a billion and a half, $2 billion in business. So nobody wants to do it. So there are structural inefficiencies that basically prevent incumbent to compete. And they did it to themselves because for the last hundred years, they put all of these barriers of you know, lobbying and regulation and all of that. And now they can't compete. So true. And I guess the other piece we didn't mention there was just the data side of things. You know, insurance is fundamentally a data-driven 
business in terms of the underwriting, but the data infrastructure in these companies is probably, you know, built for a prior era where they certainly didn't have kind of the right kind of data or look at it in the right way. Is that something that you've experienced as well? Yeah, but the interesting, so I actually looked at starting this business in 20, uh, 2007 and I briefly looked at it and I put it on the shelf. And the reason that I put it on the shelf, because I thought, one, I can't build the back end. I'm not going to go to Accenture and I'm not going to go to Guidewire. And it's going to take me four years and $300 million to build it. And the second thing was lack of data. How can you compete with fill in the blank who has 5 million customers? Well, you don't have anybody. And the third one, I wasn't certain that people would be willing to bet on a newcomer kind of new brand in insurance, which has to do with trust. And then when I re-looked at it in 2015, I figured, wow, we can actually build everything on AWS, on other microservices and do the payment with Stripe and do the chat with Intercom. And, you know, we can go through a list of 500 amazing companies that basically popped and I can build it to whatever scale I want in way faster manner and not have legacy and move that so the technology is done. Data is exactly as you said, Pete, we're in an era of abundance of data. I don't just have the five or 10 million customers. I have 130 million households. You were in Trulia and Zillow have uh, a transaction that happened in the last whatever, 25 years. It's all documented. It's all there. Just go to Zillow and type an address. You have so much data on every home, you know, from taxes to size to bedroom to pictures of inside the house, every transaction that happened. We're in a world of an abundance of data. And these are regulated industries that actually have all of this data at the fingertip. And it's uh, so you're an advantage because I'm not looking at the book. I'm looking at what's going on with all of the 130 million households. And the last component is there's a point of realization that every other aspect of your life is basically moved to a newcomer, especially on the financial side. Your bank account is with X and your student loans it with SoFi and you're uh, managing your money with Wealthfront and you're trading with Robinhood. Insurance is just one more thing in this world. And there's a higher level of the ability to trust a new brand or a lower barrier to trust a brand that is coming in, which so all of these three things came and I thought, wow, I think it's the barriers are lower. The competition can't really react. Let's launch something. Amazing. And then whatever, six years later, you're taking it public. So it's what an incredible story. And maybe, you know, if we think back to the beginning and when I first met you, you know, certainly you had some exposure to the insurance industry, but I don't know if you would sort of profess yourself as an insider or an expert in that. What was the learning process that you went through just to kind of become smart about this complicated, traditional, regulated industry? I'm a very uh, methodical learner. There's several good things in consulting, but one important thing is that you build the confidence that smart people can learn a new industry really, really fast. You have a project in media and then you have a project in telco and then you have a project in pharma. And within a span of two months, I can have an, a very intelligent discussion with the CEO of a corporation who's been doing it for 30 years. So you get the confidence that you can actually learn something. I was very far from being an insider. You know, I've done some projects with McKinsey and my dad was in insurance, but unless it was by me riding in the back seat that I learned some insurance, I don't think there was too much in that. It was the fact that there is so much information out there. Go to YouTube, go and talk to people. I went and talked to all of the McKinsey partners that I know and went and talked to them and said, fine, if you would have started a business now in insurance, what do you would have done knowing what you know now? 
And then the second question, if you were a CEO of an insurance company, what are the three biggest pain points for them? And it was about digitization. It was about millennial. It was about direct and stuff like that. So it kind of gave me confidence. And then I just read and read. I did the licenses to be an agent. And then I did more licenses. And then I read more. And then I went to some conferences. And I read, read, read until I got to a certain point that I felt I have a good enough conviction on what I'm doing. And I learned a lot. I always tell my team that there was zero chance I would have started a business now knowing what I know now. Not bad not to know that there's a lot of power in naivety. I actually think naivety is one of the biggest super strengths of entrepreneurs. So, you know, I had enough information to get to enough conviction and not too much information and know-how that it would scare the shit out of me. And I think one of the interesting things is, in general, to really disrupt and change an industry, you kind of need to come from the outside. I don't think Uber would have started ever from the Taxi Drivers Association and Airbnb from the you know hotel management and almost any other like big business. You need to come up fresh. Otherwise, you find yourself at the common denominator and you need to work on somewhat close to the envelope at the beginning. And I think you need to come up with a fresh mindset of looking at all of these things, looking at the customer differently and not this is how everybody else is doing stuff. I totally agree. It's these sort of ideas that are collision or outsiders. Is there any sort of frameworks or tactics that you've seen other people use or you use yourself just to help in that idea formation or just getting up to speed to validate whether this is an idea that might be disruptive or build a compelling business? You know, it's a good question. I don't have a format. I'll tell you my story. So I sold my previous company and I thought I have another one in me and I want to do something bigger. I kind of felt like I sold it too early. It didn't materialize where I wanted to be. It wasn't the mother of all exits and stuff like that. And I thought I have in me one more. I didn't have an idea. And so I had to go to an ideation thing. And my ventures are usually coming from different areas. Let's say you have a world of 100% of the ventures that are being started. My guess is 90% of them are split evenly between either domain expertise. You know, you have uh, cyber companies. They're not going to pop by if someone, you know, Peter and Asaf are sitting and like, let's do a cyber company in this. It's just never going to happen. You need to have domain expertise, networking, I don't know, optics. There's a bunch of stuff that requires a certain domain expertise to actually build. And then you add the other stuff, which is more of a need base. So I was talking to people and I was shocking that you don't have this. Or I was browsing the web and I couldn't find. And I'm sure that, you know, we can talk about your two companies and you have like a massive realization of something that came both of them are not deep domain expertise, but are kind of need-based. And none of them were my ventures. And then you have the last 10%, which I would say kind of also probably evenly split, and I'm just making up the numbers. Half of it from, you know, there's a Stanford professor who has an amazing technology, but no product. So we need to productize and figure out if there's something, utilization for the stuff. And then the last thing, which is purely research-driven. So I sit down and I read for three months tons of stuff, not insurance. I basically said, listen, I'm going to read and I'm going to try and find four kind of outliers. And I actually ranked them. So the first one, my previous company was a hardware company that built a brand of products for baby boomers. So I know how to productize a product, come up with a hardware. I know how to manufacture, how to uh, distribute, how to ship. I know all of that stuff. I have scars on my back from here to the moon, from all of the stuff. So I thought, that's the easy one. So I started looking at what can I do to utilize my experience and just come up with something different. And the top contender for this kind of silo was I'm going to build a, an air care product for Latinx. That was what came up from the research. 
Say it again. What kind of product? Air kill, like stuff for the air, for people, for Latino. I thought there is a gap in the market. There is an interesting thing. This was the time where direct-to-consumer brands were valued at 20x what the uh, same brands were. You know, this is Honest Company. This is Harry's. This is uh, Dollar Shave Club and Casper. And they're valued at X and they're cutting like the middleman. And I thought maybe I can do a subscription and all of that. Couldn't get too excited, but that was the top thing. Second silo was, can I take some components from my past expertise and answer a need that I have? And what I came up with was under the title of disrupting logistics. Try to ship something from China. It's a freaking mess. Try to find a manufacturer. It's not easy. Try to cover custom. Try to ship. And I thought there's a lot of stuff that can basically be done in there. I usually find like a number that really, really nugs me. The number that I found there was that 73% of the trucks are coming back empty. And I thought that's crazy. Maybe there's an Uber for trucking. And I do think there's a lot of interesting things to be done in that stuff. There's actually several really, really interesting companies that popped in that space. But I couldn't get myself excited that this is when I wake up in the morning every day, this is what I'm thinking. If I'm going to bed at night, this is what I'm doing. When I'm taking a shower, I'm only thinking logistics. I couldn't get myself excited about that. So that was the second one. Then I reserved the third one. Is there something, is there like an area in the market that I think is super exciting and just I find attractive. And in that point of time, the one that I found as a domain was different utilization of shared resource. So think about WeWork. Think about Teespring. I have a classmate of mine from University of Chicago that after Arnold's and Bush were bought by uh, InBev, they had to sell some of the breweries. And he bought a couple of the breweries and now he probably manufactures 50% of the craft brewers because people need the place. If all food comes with an order, you can't scale it up from 50 gallons to 5,000 gallons. So you need something. And that's what he does. So I started looking at it. The idea that I came back with was to do a rework of professional kitchens. This was also the time when Blue Apron were going and all of these guys and they couldn't scale because they didn't have kitchens. And the last one was insurance, which I kind of brought back from my back pocket from 2007. Sure, there's a bunch of startup founders listening. They're like, oh, we need to build those businesses. And some of them have been built, which is the fascinating thing. So you came up with the idea and you had this sort of direct-to-consumer, data-driven, millennial approach. Like, And you're not an insurance expert, but you became like a quick study and quick learner about it. I imagine you had to hire a team of you know industry veterans that kind of knew this industry much better than you. How did you convince them that they should join you as opposed to stick with their perhaps their comfortable jobs at many of these incumbents? Well, the hardest job ever. The hardest. And especially there's not a lot of insurance talent in California. So you had to pull them from forever. By the way, as a side note, I do think that the way that you actually compensate for the lack of expertise is by overpaying, but for a good reason, for consultants. Because the people that I'm going to bring in initially are probably not on the caliber to do the things that I want. I know how to attract top engineering talent. But the people that I'm going to bring initially on the insurance side are probably not going to be very strong because I can pay them a lot in an industry that pays them quite a bit. They're going to ask us, what does this guy want? It's like, it's crazy. It's too risky. They're also people that work in the insurance industry are risk averse by structure. That's why they work in insurance, trying to change that. So the way to compensate that is, for instance, if you need an actuary, there is always the McKinsey of actuaries. There's a company called Milliman and you overpay them, but they speed up and they also, you tick marks because you don't write the insurance product by yourself. You don't live in a silo. You need an insurance company to 
underwrite. You need a reinsurer to take the risk. So you need to persuade a lot of people down the line. And just by saying it's Asaf and Joe, and Joe was an ex, that's not going to fly. So sometimes you need to have and we're using, uh, you know, Sidley as the lawyers because they're the lawyers of Wall State and stuff like that. You need to take points from other and you overpay for that. But that's just to get off the ground. Finding the initial first people is always hard. By the way, it's not easier, although it's somewhat easier now, but it's still very, very hard because you're trying to find people that are understanding of what you do and not trying to pull you of this is how we've been doing it for 30 years. You just battled against their kind of judgment until you kind of pulled them over. Was that the approach? I imagine that some of the consultants, they wouldn't want to touch a no-name startup with a limited capital. Uh, yeah, so more uh, mercenaries. Your first employees are missionaries, and you always want to have a certain thing of missionaries versus mercenaries. But these consultants are mercenaries, and as long as you pay them, they're fine. You can pull some of that. I was also very, very fortunate that one of my first employees was my partner now, Rick McCathlin, who was president, who was, you know, basically number two or three person in Mercury Insurance and did some startups and came to the realization that something can be done. And it was just a very opportune time that I met him. Every once in a while, a startup is super risky, but there are several moments that you hire specific people, you have a partnership or something. They're kind of like binary moments. So this is one of the important binary moments that we had when Rick McCathlin joined us. And then, so you had the team and then, you know, obviously insurance is a regulated industry. Was this more difficult than you expected? In some ways, yes. In some ways, not. So I learned to appreciate regulated industries. I think this is a place of arbitrage. Let me be specific. I think, you know, you're funding amazing companies as an investor. And every time an entrepreneur comes and they're saying, Pete, it's going to take us seven months and one and a half million dollars to build this capability. And then it's actually going to be 11 months and two and a half million dollars. And you have your own flexibility on the numbers, but that's what always happens. And it's never the same. And there is a technical issue and there's a leap through that we need to do, or there's always something. Regulatory component is actually measurable risk. It's like, you know, I can go to who's the best lawyer in the US for whatever regulation, insurance regulation, and you can find five of these. Then there's ranking because everything in the US you have ranking and you can just do a nice search on the web of the top five and you're going to get the list and you go and you schedule a meeting with all of them and you said, fine, I want a file in California, a regular, you know, a basically a filing for home insurance. And they're going to ask you, do you have a carrier to do that? And you're like, either yes or no. And do you have a reinsurer? Yes or no. Let's say I tick mark. And you say, how much time it's going to take? And this is, yeah, on average, it's six months. It can be up to eight months. And it's going to cost you $173,000, $249. I was like, okay, fine. Now I have a plugin in, fine, I'll put 215000 It doesn't really matter, but it's very specific because this is all these guys are doing. It's a certain process that they know how to run. There's not a lot of risk behind that. It's actually quite de-risking the business. It's just that it even negates competition in many ways because it's not that Pete and Eric are sitting over you know, coffee and you're like, we should start something, dude. And da, da, da. Let's start an insurance company. And five seconds later, you're going to call Joe and Joe is going to say, oh, you're freaking nuts, Pete. We know what it means. There's compliance, there's regulation, there's reinsurance. Why do you need to get into that? And that would kill it in the butt. And that's a massive benefit. Yeah. Do you think as a second time entrepreneur, this was a sort of a level of risk that you were comfortable with? And maybe broadening that, what did you, I guess, as you as you were thinking about building Hippo, what did you apply to the business that you learned from your experience as a prior entrepreneur? 
Yeah, I do think it's a kind of risk that you are a lot more honest with yourself as a second time entrepreneur on the risks in the payment. Entrepreneurship is really, really interesting because for the outside world, you have like a foreign kind of minister that you need to everything is amazing. It's doing it's going. It's like we're crushing it. And then on the inside, you need to be really, really honest with your board, with your partners, with everybody like this doesn't work. Let's analyze why. Let's fix it and what's going on. And you constantly need to live in this two-faced kind of thing. As a second-time entrepreneur, you become more honest with yourself about these discussions. So I can quantify better these kind of risks and have the right discussion and dissect basically what's the execution hurdles that are needed in a way more clean and succinct way. And that was beneficial. Second thing is I swore to myself that if I'm starting a business, I'm starting it on the biggest time I can. Actually, in an industry, I'm not educating anymore. Like I built a business that I needed to educate people that there is a need for such a product. And then it's such an uphill battle. If you succeed, it's massive. I'm not saying then you have a really, really good position. But insurance, as I said, it's $105 billion market just on home insurance. I don't need to be, it's not a winner take all. Let me have 1% of the market. That's not a bad outcome. It's a billion and a half dollars in premiums. So I don't need to explain. It's mandatory. You need to have it. So it's a very different discussion. So I wanted to find something like that. As I said, my previous company was a hardware. I swore I'm never going to do hardware again. I'm not doing shipping. I'm not doing tooling. I'm not doing manufacturing and quality. Plus, I hate businesses that Every time it's a one-off purchase, I was like, I'm going to do a business that's going to be as repeated purchase as possible. The lifetime of a home insurance policy is usually eight to nine years. So once you have a customer and you do well with them, they last with you for eight to 10 years. That's an awesome business to have. So this company is the fix-up for all of the shit that, you know, that I had in the past. It's a big market. And then I also changed culture. When I started the business, I had two kids. I was in a different position. I wanted to be an involved parent. I have a wife who is way smarter and more accomplished than me, who actually let me start another business when I was entering my 40s. Because she could have said, what the hell are you doing? Like, listen, we have a mortgage, we have a thing. But no, she was very supportive and, and let me do that. And I wanted to build a culture in a company that is actually celebrating that. So Hippo is a family-oriented place. Most of the people that we have, are older. We are based in Palo Alto, not in San Francisco. Family comes first in the fact that if your kid have a recital, you're kind of obligated to go to the recital. Don't make choices for the business. But on the flip side, we hire people that are slightly more senior and more mature, and we trust them to make their own choices. I don't need to manage Pete. I'm like, Pete, this is your to-do. This is your KPI. You figure out your time and your own assignments. There was a maturity of myself as well in starting the business. Fascinating. And do you think that the nature of the industry has sort of leans itself to that. I mean, obviously, there's the bias towards execution over kind of like, you know, I guess sort of disrupting an existing market versus creating a new market. Do you think the culture that you created is aligned with the problem you're trying to solve and the team you hired? Was that part of the thinking process or was it more just personal what you wanted to do at that time? Many times, especially early on, listen, you just hire the strongest people you can find that are willing to bet on you and work for pennies. And you can't now let me also find that that person who's a great technology or great product person is also aligned with the age. You know, it's uh, not that strategic. Yeah, it just works out that way. You marshal whatever resources you can grab. And you're thankful for that. And you have different currencies at different time of the company. The first currency that you do, which screws up a lot of the stuff later on, is titles. You take a person who was maybe, maybe now can be an engineering manager and he's all of a sudden your VP of engineering because he bet on you and stuff. And then, uh, you know, later in growth, you need to fix all of these titles, but you compensate them better. And there's all kinds of other things that moving. 
So let's continue just talk a little bit about entrepreneurial culture. I know you've talked about like speed versus strategy and what does that mean to you? And as you think about, you know, rapidly scaling this organization, building a world-class multi-billion dollar company, how do you think about the core cultural tenets that enable you to do that? I've served for five years in the Israeli Air Force and was a captain. And, you know, there's some components that I learned from it. And I think some of them are the tenants for the business. I think I'll give you the main ones. So the main one for me is you say what you do, you do what you say. I think it's the most simple thing. If I told you I'm doing something, then I'm doing it. It's very simple, but you're accountable for that. And you have a sense of ownership and you need to deliver on that. And I take it with 100% certainty that if Pete told me that he's doing something, then it's done. I don't want to micromanage. I don't want to check on you. I think if you find the right people and you instill that level of confidence that, you know, they have responsibility and ownership, then you can accomplish a ton of stuff. So that's a core tenant of the company. I would say, let me think of a couple of others that I think, you know, I, I grew up in a company in a unit that the motto was Uders wins. And I think that you need to take calculated bets and it's important, but you need to embrace it and embrace faults and embrace when you're making a mistake. And But I really, really prefer that if someone comes and asks me a question, it's always going to come back with an answer. And I always going to say, okay, do it, but let's have a gating factor. What if it doesn't work? Or what's the hypothesis? We know that we're actually on the right track, but I always prefer that people move and not get too much into analysis paralysis, which drives me nuts. And I think stops so many corporations from actually acting. I'm trying to think what else, there's several components that matters to me. But I think this is like, and I'm born for action is a very important thing for me. Just sitting down and strategizing and strategizing and strategizing doesn't help. I much rather just go and test and then come back with some answer. And I trust you. So, you know, if Pete worked for a staff, I said, Pete, what do you think? You're way closer. So you have higher weight on the decision and you're way closer to the point. Present to me the hypothesis. And then I'm going to ask you, what's your level of conviction of this idea? And if you say, listen, I think it's around 70, 80 percent, go and do it. And let's have a discussion in two weeks when we have we know more. And, you know, the last 12 months have been incredible year for you, but also a very challenging year for employees and business building. If you reflect over the last year, you've been on this sort of rocket ship growth, but you've had to navigate COVID and working from home and everything else that comes with that. Is there anything that, you know, as you look back, things that you did or you had to do that were particularly helpful to you as you've scaled during that period? I think there's a tendency to think that it's because of the company or stuff that we did, that we are in a certain position. I think that it's actually more macro. Startups are more set up and wired for the change that happened. For us, it wasn't a big deal to work remotely. It wasn't. Incumbents, it was an issue. So we were, you know, wired in a certain way. Onboarding people uh, remotely was not very complicated. Interviewing them uh, over Zoom was something that we were doing from before. The shift to digitization happened in the world, and we were benefactors of that. The company is growing like crazy, hence the currency that we have which is equity, is worth more and more, is beneficial for the company. So we have less attrition and it's easier for us to hire people. You know, it's easy for me to say, listen, we did this and we did that. And that's what actually entails and then brought us to where we are. I think the, you know, the company was performing and executing, but we have macro trends that were very beneficial for us. And that also enabled us to grow because we were set up for that, track the right level of talent, retain them, taking care of them. 
what I learned is that more communication is important. You know, people always, when I listen to podcasts, every time there's like, oh, when we grew from X people to 2X and half of the people in the company has joined in the last year, and that's a measurement of growth. And what we have now is to add to that, it's not that we grew, you know, half of the people joined in the last year. And also none of them stepped a day in the office or seen another person from Hippo in the last year. It's crazy. It's like, you take something and then you add layers and layers on top of it. Yeah, it is crazy. I'm sort of visualizing when you talk about those sort of the incumbent, I'm visualizing a cargo ship stuck in the Suez Canal. It's like you're the speedboat and you're able to move around it. When a dislocation happens, the commas just get stuck. And that's just the inherent advantage of a startup. So able to move faster, able to execute on the opportunity. That's what I think is going on now. So I haven't thought about it this way, but I'm thinking about it now that you're saying it. And, you know, we've seen the last year as a crazy year for startups on scale. And a lot of it is, you know, every person that worked a day in an incumbent know how slow they are and, you know, they're moving super slow. Now take exactly as you say, now they're stuck in the Suez Canal on the side and you have an abundance of fuel for all of these newcomers. So they just surpass and keep on growing. So the last year has been such a massive growth because the incumbent industry has been stagnate a lot more and the other guys have a lot more. So it's just way faster than it used to be even before. I'm curious, do you think this is going to accelerate this opportunity and versus incumbents or do you think they're going to fight their way back? You know, some of them will, some of them not. It's not a winner take all. I do think that the pace of innovation, we're just going to keep on increasing with the move to the cloud. With external tools, some of the more interesting companies in the world today are actually offering its work days. It's gusto. It's giving you, it's dissecting the enterprise to give newcomers the ability. You have Carta, who's like, really? That's what you're doing? Managing? Yes, because it's a field that you needed to deal with. And now someone else is outsourcing. So you can actually focus more on the stuff that you need to focus and have a lot less of an enterprise and a lot more of a focused kind of approach to what you do with tools, with digitization, with customers that are expecting a different experience. The pace is just going to increase. It's not going to decrease. And it's a very, very difficult thing to change the state of mind of incumbents. Now, one of my favorite book is, you know, Only the Paranoid Survive. In it, you know, it's the story of Intel who's trying to disrupt itself. Amongst a lot of the things that's being told in the book is that problem that you have is that the people in the top are the people that constantly made the right choices on the previous business. So who's on the top is the people that constantly made the right choices and the right thing. And their DNA and their entire thing is wired to a certain thing. But now you need someone to make the opposite choices that are counter to what brought them to be the CMO and the CEO and the CFO of the company. So... That's what's going on in incumbents now. Now you're trying to ask the CEO of a company that is running, you know, as a $30 billion business to make choices that are counter to his DNA. It's just not going to happen. So how do you avoid that happening to you? How do you put the cultural tenets so you don't become the incumbent that someone else will disrupt? I think it all starts and boils down to decision making. So we believe that the company is a meritocracy of an idea. We have all kinds of things like strong opinions loosely held. I think at any decision point, I don't have disproportionate amount of weight. The decision has to do with domain expertise multiplied by conviction. And you try to have people that are independent thinkers that are okay to challenge. Hence, why it's not the people that are the most senior who makes the decision. It's the people that actually have the highest weight for the decision and the highest conviction who's going to win. Yeah. And that creates a culture of startups within startups, which hopefully can help you avoid that disruption. Will we turn into, yes, listen, the second that you start building something, it becomes legacy. The second that you are, there's some stuff that are just structural. There's the atrophy of the, the organization. But if you 
proactive to think about it, if you bring strong people, if you talk about it in the management, if you, you know what, every once in a while acquire another startup, not just for capabilities, but actually for an infusion of a new DNA, and you think about it in this way, then you stand the chance of you becoming incumbents. So maybe shifting gears a little bit, you announced just recently that you are going to go public via a SPAC. And, you know, I'm sure all the audience have heard of SPACs by this point, but maybe if you could just share a little bit about the rationale behind that and kind of tell us what's going on in terms of what Hippo is doing. Sure. We put a lot of thought into that. It was, oh God, we started being bombarded by different SPACs, I would say mid last year. And in the beginning, we kind of like nudged them all out because we thought it's the bottom feeders of Wall Street. I don't know how else to kind of uh, describe it. That was the perception in the market. And then happened several things that basically made us think about it differently. The first one, we became a bit jaded by Wall Street. And what I mean by that is, you know, a lot of uh, close friends of ours, IPO, went public, Wall Street presented, this is the price, this is the stock, and then stock went up 80% at day one. And they're all looking at themselves and everybody's like, oh, that's awesome. But the CFO is saying, damn, I just left hundreds of millions of dollars on the table. That's ridiculous. That wasn't, you know, and who are the main customers for Wall Street? Is it Hippo or is it Wellington? Is it T-Row Price or is it, uh, you know, Company X? So that was the first thing. The second thing, which was, why is it so good to be 25 times oversubscribed? Well, that looks like a very weird thing for us. And the component that had to do with, I need an analyst to present my basically forecast instead of me talking to the investors and I tell them what I see as my five-year kind of forecast. There was just something in the process didn't really gel with us well enough. So that was one. And then... On the other side, some of our current investors and people that I think the world of, and I think our top professionals on the field, started setting up their own SPACs. So Rebit Capital, which I think are you know amongst the best fintech investors around, and Mickey and Nick are amazing. I was like, whoa, where did this came from? Why did you set up a, fund, a SPAC? And Dragonir as well, which is also our investor, you know, and Jared and Mark are you know best of read. So I could have a discussion with people that I trust to get another kind of point of view and the mindset. So that helped us educate. So we were looking at it and we became a lot more, okay, that's actually interesting. I do think that there are some components that they put too much weight on the benefit of a SPAC versus an IPO, which in hindsight, doing the process now, I think it was a disproportionate amount of weight. And I can get to that in a minute. So firstly, we went to study this instrument. We were going to do an IPO. We were about, you know, prepping an S1 to do a confidential S1 filing. So we were, you know, the company would have been public. Let me split it into two things. I think before any of that coming, before anybody considered the respect, you should ask yourself two questions before. The first question, is the company ready to be a public company? You will always miss out on that because you're running a company and all of a sudden a SPAC reach you and like, oh, fine. Wow. Well, we can be a public company and raise $400 million. That's amazing. But you never stop to say, do you have the right processes in place? Can you forecast, I don't know, eight quarters into the future and beat and raise your numbers? How have you been doing recently on the beat and raise with your board? Do you have a GC that can be a GC of a public company? Do you have audited financial documents for the last two years as a public company? Do you have a CISO in the company because you're going to be attacked like crazy by cyber? Do you have a, a CFO that can actually do it? There's just a bunch of questions that you should really ask yourself. And people kind of forgot. And we know quite a few people that signed with a SPAC and now we're like, oh God, we need to do everything. And they're like, where did this thing form? So I think that's the first question. Second question is, 
is it the right thing for the company to be a public company? I don't know if three companies, the right thing for them to be a public company or in the right timing. We thought for insurance, it's awesome because we're in a game of trust. We're going to get a lot of credibility. It's good for our partnership. It's good for a lot of stuff. It matters if Pete is calling my call center and someone you're going to ask, who are you guys exactly? And one of my agents is going to say, oh, and we're uh, listed on X, Y, and Z. Like it's just, there's something which resonates very differently. So you need one, is the company ready to be public? B, is the right thing for the company to be a public company? Once you tick mark these two things, which people always forget, then I have fiduciary duty in front of my board to present to them that there's not just one way to go public. There's actually three. We can do a standard IPO, we can do a SPAC, or we can do direct listing. And each one has a bit of a pros and cons, but it's my job to present the options to my board. At that point of time, we're like, okay, fine. We're ready. We want to do, let's figure it out. And we said that there was something in the dichotomy of being a public company, which you're in the warm and fuzzy place of private company. And then one millisecond later, you're a public company and people can trade in and out of your shares and everything is out there. And we're like, whoa, I want to have something which, can I have someone who somewhat helped me mitigate that transition? And we came across, uh, you know, Reed and Mark, and as a person who lives in Palo Alto, the optionality to work with Reed and Mark is, I'll be the dumbest person in the world to resist that optionality. It's Reed Hoffman and Mark Pincus who built a couple of successful companies and thinking about that and came to the realization that they want to do a SPAC. They call it being VC on scale to help a company and specific ventures that they think are in their reinvention and transition mode to build the next franchise of their industry, to stay there for a long time, to align, to join the board, to basically help this company grow was a full alignment and a meeting of the mind. And, you know, that's why we decided to go with them. And then, so that's on that. Sorry, I'm talking too much on this, but I want to talk about the framework that we did for SPAC, which I think is something interesting as well. Please. So after we talked to several, we put a framework on SPACs and we called it, there were three components. The first one was price. By the way, it wasn't about maximizing price. It was, what do we think is a fair price for the company to go public that is going to be right for our shareholders, right for the pipe investor? If it's going to be too high, no pipe investor want to do it. How can we make sure that some growth left in the market, that investors that are coming in are still going to do well? I don't want to go public and then, you know, stock down 20%. It's not something that we wanted. So we put something that we thought that's the fair price for the company and the board was fully aligned. It was more of a gating component rather than a maximization algo. Second thing was certainty. So because in SPAC, one of the things is beneficial is you get certainty on the price because I signed on the merger agreement and whatever it was, February. And that's going to be the price when we dispack three, four months down the line, as opposed to when you're doing an IPO, which you're like, you know, you're prepping everything and then you have 10 days that you need or whatever it is that you're doing your roadshow. And if the window is open, the window is not open and then you come up with a price. So I want to make sure that if I'm taking advantage of the certainty, I actually get the certainty. And the certainty you get by several components. There's a couple of paragraphs about minimum financing requirement and stuff like that. But the main one was the reputational risk of our partner, because Reed and Mark has more to lose by a screw-up of this transaction than Asaf, because they built a bigger reputation for themselves, and they have more. And I wanted something that basically aligns that way. I wanted someone that we call it industrial strength of a SPAC. 
I didn't want off SPAC. I wanted someone who SPAC'd before, who's going to have a family of SPACs later on, who's going to have a reputational risk on continuation doing that and know-how, a relationship with investors, a relationship with the street, and bring us a lot more value. So we call it industrial strength, and that adds to the certainty of the transaction. And the third one was alignment. We wanted people that are aligned with us and not using it as a transaction. And that has to do with the terms that you have, which is, you know, the promote, how they're earning it, the time that they have until they're basically making. So, you know, we're locked for a certain time and they're locked for a certain time. A board seat, investment in the pipe and not just in the space. There's a bunch of things. And then we had this meeting of the mind that the valuation is what we wanted. We love the partners. We are very certain of this thing. And we look at it as a partnership as opposed to a transaction, which is awesome. And thirdly, an alignment. We said, fine, I think it's the most preferential way to go public if we can. And that's what we did. Yeah, that's such a terrific story and context. Now, I remember taking truly a public in 2012. And, you know, it seemed at the time the kind of expected process, but you look at where it is today and it's sort of incredibly antiquated and painful and expensive. And, you know, almost feels like Wall Street and the banks kind of really created this opportunity themselves. Like, you know, when you see this friction in a market, it's like water, something will flow around it to find a more efficient route. And then, you know, we'll see what happens with SPACs, but it feels like they're here to stay. And I couldn't agree more that, you know, Reader Mark are just exceptional entrepreneurs, that the opportunity to have them in your camp, as opposed to purely financially motivated folks, is such a unique opportunity. The kudos to you. Yes, finally, I'd love to kind of touch on a couple of things. So one is just what's in store for Hippo going forward. And then two, I'd love to future gaze for a bit. I, again, reminiscing back to our first conversation when you were starting Hippo, a component of it was smart homes. There was this sort of proliferation of data that's happening. I'm curious as you think about homes of the future, like what do you see trends happening in smart homes? And as you think about where we live in the next 10 years, like what does that look like from your perspective? Sure. Let me take the first part of it first. So I think 2020 was a very interesting year. It's a year that our homes became a lot more fundamental to our lives. It's your office, it's your school, it's your gym, it's your restaurant. It's a lot more than just what was the home before. And because of that, the relationship and now, you know, what you're seeing in the second half of the year and continuing now is the amount of transaction and people are either renovating their home or moving homes and stuff like that, which is crazy. So I think our relationship with our home has actually evolved and it would keep on evolving. However, there is a certain disconnect because before you're buying a home, you have this romantic vision of, oh, I'm going to be a homeowner. I'm going to buy this beautiful house and it's going to be a joy. And you envision, you know, having your kids go there and your girl go down the stairs for, uh, you know, a prom and you're carrying and your kids, you know, hitting their finger and, and, you know, throwing flour at each other. You have all of these visions and then you're moving in. I'm like, damn, the plumbing doesn't work and this doesn't work. And I have a problem in the backyard of this and the tree. Like, yeah, you know, and there's like this disconnect. Our view and our vision is protecting the joy of homeownership. And our view is not just to be the insurance company, but to help our customers live better in their home. Smart home is one component, but there's also, we bought a company that is hip home care. It's our telemaintenance. Every one of our customers can call the call center and we're going to help you, you know, install a shelf, vet a contractor or whatever it is. I think there's a deeper partnership to do with homeowners, home appliance warranties potential in the process of home buying and inspection and assessment and all of that loveliness that you're very familiar from your Tulia days. And I think there's a lot of ways to basically partner with our customers a lot more and help them 
basically live life to what they want to live. And we're going to take care of the crap in the home maintenance and taking care of the home. So our direction is that. And I think we're in an interesting inflection point where customers are looking for a different experience. And this is just the beginning of new franchises in this industry, which is such a vast industry. So that's for Hippo. I'm very, very optimistic. The business is doing very, very well. We're growing really, really nicely. We're attracting amazing team members and partners and this is honestly just the beginning. My partner always say that we're not even picking up the lowing in fruits. We're still uh, picking up fruits from the floor and walking around and eating watermelons. You know, we're far from like extending ourselves. So that's that. Now, smart home is a really interesting thing. I want to bring two points. One, one of the realizations that we have is when I explain what EPO is for people, what I'm basically saying is that Incumbents have spent the last 100 years building a flawed experience, and it's flawed because it's hard to purchase. When you look at the coverage, you'll see that you're covered for obsolete things like fur coats and pewter boards and china and silverware, mausoleums and crypts, but uh, you're not modern stuff. And then when you have a claim, it's an horrendous kind of experience. And by the way, in between this bad claim, you know, onboarding and horrible claim experience, you have zero meaningful touch point with your insurance partner. They're actually measured on having no meaningful touch point. It's an industry that don't even call you a customer. They call you a policyholder because the customer used to be the agent. And this is what the industry is. And then when I'm, I'm going to ask people, who are you insured with? The answer is usually it's all state. No, state farm. No, farmers. Because you don't know. And they're all the same product. Because if I'm going to ask you, okay, fine, what's the difference between farmers and all state? It's the same product. You know the brands because they're spending a billion dollars in quarterback one and quarterback two, but you don't know the thing. So we built a company that make it a lot easier to purchase and agnostic and omni-channel. You can buy via an agent. You can buy on epo.com. You can buy via you know, our partners, et cetera. The coverage is a lot more modern and takes care of you. So instead of the fur coats and pewter boards, we are focused on your home office and electronics and strollers and camping equipment and things like that that you care about. When you have a claim, we have a claim concierge that instead of the minus 49 net promoter score for the industry is 60. It's one person dealing with you start to finish, mitigating the risk and taking care of you. And now let's double click on the last point, which is the touch point with Pete as a customer of EPO. And for us, we wanted to create something which shifts an adversarial relationship which insurance has now into a partnership. And we thought the way to build this partnership, basically, that the best claim experience is avoiding a claim from happening in the first place. And the way that we do it is we call it proactive insurance, is we keep on using the data to basically look at your home on an ongoing basis and flag it changes. Smart home device is at the core of this offering. We offer every one of our customers a smart home kit that has several smart sensors, motion sensors, leak detectors, smoke and fire alarm detectors, all of that kind of stuff. And then we have the Hippo Home Care, which I talked about, which is helping you take care of your home. So I think the world is going to move a lot more into partnership and smart home is going to be at the center of that. Now, if I really, really brainstorm what it can be in like 5, 10, 20 years, I actually think there is a good chance it's not going to be an insurance anymore. What I mean is you're not going to buy insurance. What you're going to buy is for $150 a month, you're going to buy a smart home kit that takes care of everything in the house. And by the way, it also includes insurance as opposed to the other way around. And I think there's a good chance with connected device and more data that's coming in that you can have these kind of offerings that are coming in as opposed to an insurance that offer that. Yeah, it's um, creating an entirely new product. Can't help but think of the auto industry where I saw some statistic the other day that people, they choose the electronics in the car over the engine 
or the look of the car, which was just like you know, staggering compared to you know, where we were sort of 10, 15 years ago. And it wouldn't surprise me if the same thing happened in a home as well. I agree. By the way, what you said, that's exactly the number one fear of Detroit versus Silicon Valley. The last thing they want, that's going to be an OEM platform and it's all going to be about the electronics and that kind of stuff, which is something that Silicon Valley is good at. And all of a sudden, the entire industry of car manufacturing is going to change. Maybe the same thing for the home industry or the construction industry. Well, Asaf, on that note, that was just an incredible conversation. Thank you for joining us today. Loved every minute. And thanks again for joining and also being for letting me part of your journey. It's been an amazing six years of many, many years of success going forward. No, thank you. Greatly appreciated you betting on me early on. I'd never take it lightly. I think the first investors in you are saints. And these are the people that they invest in you when you have nothing. So thanks for, for the vote of confidence and the amazing things that you keep on doing with NFX. Thanks, Asaf. Thank you. You've been listening to the NFX podcast. You can rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts, and you can subscribe to the NFX podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. For more information on building iconic technology companies, visit nfx.com. Thank you.